0: Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 100. Woohoo! 100. I'm your host, Paul Reichoff. Even after 99 episodes, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. That's the sound of the remains of slain Capitol Hill police officer, Brian Sicknick, being escorted up the steps of the Capitol where he would lie in honor inside the Capitol Rotunda. It's a rare honor. Officer Sicknick is just the fifth American in history to be honored this way. Lying in honor is a tribute to private citizens who have rendered distinguished service to the nation. And he certainly did that. The only other four Americans to receive the same honor were Rosa Parks in 2005, Billy Graham in 2018, and officers Jacob Chestnut and John Gibson. Also two Capitol Hill police officers who died in the line of duty in 1998 when a gunman stormed past a Capitol security checkpoint. Officer Chestnut was killed immediately, and Officer Gibson later died in surgery. They were heroes, and they lied in honor, just as Officer Sicknick did this week. It was a powerful, sobering, sad scene. Carried on most networks live. Officer Sicknick's fellow officers, a few who are my friends, paid tribute. Officer Sicknick's family paid tribute, as did elected leaders, the president, and the first lady. Then, Capitol Hill police carried his remains in a long procession to Arlington National Cemetery. We can never forget that scene. We can never forget this moment. We can never forget Officer Brian Sicknick. Never forget is a line and a hashtag that emerged after 9-11, never forget. We said it all the time to ensure that people didn't forget all of our fellow citizens that died that day, but also to ensure they never forgot how badly it hurt and how many mistakes were made. Never forget. Never forget was a rally cry after 9-11, and it must again be the rally cry After 1-6, we must never forget 1-6. Never forget January 6th, 2021. Never forget that on January 6th, they murdered Officer Brian Sechnick. Domestic terrorists, traitors, insurrectionists, enemies of the people, enemies of America. Never forget that they murdered him. Before he was a Capitol Hill police officer, Brian Sicknick served in the Air National Guard. Officer Sicknick survived deployments to the Middle East, only to be killed at home by his fellow citizens inside his own nation's capital. Domestic terrorists killed him. Domestic terrorists that must be held accountable and crushed nationwide. We must never forget and make sure our leaders never forget. Yeah, I've slept better every night this month, knowing that Trump no longer has access to our military and to our nukes. But I'm also losing sleep over the next January 6th, because already many in Washington are forgetting. And especially, and most dangerously, many in our political leadership are forgetting. Now, MSNBC, CNN, C-SPAN, they all showed the arrival of Officer Sicknick's remains at the Capitol Live, but not Fox News. I'm not singling them out because I'm a partisan. I'm singling them out because I'm a patriot and because they're wrong. And like everyone else, they must never forget. But they forgot, or they want you to forget. And many in Republican leadership are also hoping we forget, especially so called leaders like House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. After tremendous controversy and bipartisan calls for action, Kevin McCarthy. And GOP leadership in the House have declined to remove the radical, dangerous Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments. Despite her denying that Parkland happened. Despite her denying that a plane hit the Pentagon on 9-11. Despite threatening to put a bullet in the head of the Speaker of the House. And we covered Marjorie Taylor Greene earlier this week in a special episode of The Dispatches with Parkland father Fred Gutenberg. He lost his daughter on Parkland. And now Marjorie Taylor Greene says it didn't happen. If you missed it, check that episode out. Because Fred Gutenberg can never forget. But Kevin McCarthy forgot. And Kevin McCarthy failed. He refused to remove her from committee assignments or take any action. Instead of cleaning up his own house, McCarthy is firing back at Democrats and ensuring an expanded political war that hurts the Republican Party deeply and all Americans who are caught in the crossfire. It's bad policy. It's bad politics. It's bad leadership. Kevin McCarthy has already forgotten January 6th, maybe because he had a hand in it. Whatever his reason, he wants us to move on. He wants you to forget. And he's not alone. Many in Congress hope you forget. Some in Congress have already forgotten. Since metal detectors were installed outside the House floor after January 6th, a number of Republican elected leaders have blown past the metal detectors and protested, some arguing that the screenings violate their constitutional rights. Freshman Representative Lauren Boebert from Colorado said the metal detectors wouldn't have stopped the violence and called it just another political stunt by Speaker Pelosi. Meanwhile, the U.S. Capitol Police have launched an investigation into a report that Representative Andy Harris, a Republican from Maryland, tried to take a gun onto the House floor. They refused to stop at metal detectors in the Capitol and maybe carrying guns. If they tried this crap at the TSA at any airport, they'd be arrested. If they tried this at your local elementary school, they'd be arrested. And if they do it in the Capitol, they should be arrested. But this is not the real world. It's Congress. So instead, the House voted this week to impose a new rule that will fine members of Congress who blow through the new metal detectors $5,000 for the first offense and $10,000 for the second offense. It'll be deducted from their pay. $5,000 for blowing through a metal detector, disrespecting Capitol Hill police, endangering their colleagues, Secret Service officers, and countless others. $5,000. Members of Congress that blow through metal detectors a month after a murderous terrorist attack will be fined the same amount that NFL players are fined for unapproved visor tint. $5,000. That's what the NFL fines players if they don't have an approved visor on their helmet. $5,000. That's what they'll fine a member of Congress if they blow through a metal detector and try to take a gun on the House floor. $5,000. $5,000 if one of those members of Congress is a QAnon supporter who's already threatened to put a bullet in the Speaker of the House's head. Many have forgotten. These dangerous, selfish, radical members of Congress have already forgotten about January 6th. They've already forgotten about Officer Brian Sicknick. And they're hoping you forget too. Well, most Americans don't forget. And they don't like leaders or parties who do. They raise their voices and they vote. And they vote with their feet and their party affiliations between elections. According to NPR, in the week following the Capitol riot, about 4,600 Republicans changed their party status in Colorado. There were also about 6,000 defections from the party in North Carolina, 10,000 in Pennsylvania, 5,000 in Arizona. And here's the kicker something we've been talking about on this show for about 99 episodes. In Colorado, only a small percentage of those Republican defectors made the leap to join the Democratic Party. Some went to conservative third parties, but very few. The vast majority of those 4,600 people, about 4,200 people, over 90%, switched from Republican to unaffiliated. Over 90%. Of those Republicans are now unaffiliated. Over 90% are now independent. They join the 40 plus percent of Americans that are fed up with both parties and choosing none of the above. The most powerful political affiliation in American politics, and maybe the fastest growing affiliation in American politics, is no affiliation at all. More and more by the day, angry Americans are independent Americans. And unlike Kevin McCarthy and so many others, independent Americans never forget. And their numbers are growing. Stakes is still high. In this, our 100th episode, stakes are as high as ever before. But this is not the time to rest or get lazy or get too tired to try or to forget. This is the time to stay vigilant. There's still plenty of reason to be angry, but now more than ever, we need to turn that anger into positive impact and be thoughtful and constructive with our anger. And maybe just have less anger and more independence, more healthy skepticism, more good information, more vigilance, and more voices that can add light to the heat voices like our guest in this episode, Sebastian Younger. Sebastian Younger is a conscience for America. He has been for decades and is again now. He's one of the finest, most effective, most important authors of our time. He's a true defender of our democracy, a keeper of the flame.
1: Let's roll.
0: He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Perfect Storm and also Fire, A Death in Belmont, War, and Tribe. He's a contributing editor to Vanity Fair and a special correspondent at ABC News. He's been in the toughest places all over the world, and he's gotten a National Magazine Award and a Peabody. He's also a filmmaker. A documentary filmmaker whose debut film Restrepo was nominated for an Academy Award and won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. Restrepo is one of the best war documentaries ever made, and it chronicles the deployment of a U.S. Army platoon in Afghanistan's Korangal Valley. We're going to talk about that. After Restrepo, he produced and directed three additional documentaries about war and its aftermath. Which Way is the Frontline from Here premiered on HBO and chronicled the life, and career of his friend and colleague, and a man I was honored to know, photojournalist Tim Hetherington, who was killed while covering the Civil War in Libya in 2011. And then Sebastian created Korengal, returning to the subject of combat and trying to answer the eternal questions of why men and women miss war. And then he created The Last Patrol, which also premiered on HBO, and pulled apart the complexities of returning home from war. It followed Sebastian and three friends, as they go up the East Coast Railroad lines on foot. They're all powerful and important and timely. Sebastian's a master storyteller, whether it's in film or in books. He's a master of deeply important American stories. And he also tells stories about what's to come. His reporting on Afghanistan in 2000, before 9-11, profiled Northern Alliance leader Ahmed Shah Massoud who was assassinated just days before 9-11. The story became the subject of a National Geographic documentary Into the Forbidden Zone, and it introduced America to the Afghan resistance fighting the Taliban. Sebastian lives in New York City and in Cape Cod, and he's one of the most interesting and intelligent people I've ever been honored to know. His work is always ahead of the curve. He helps us understand the world, and especially America, he explains our history, explores our heart, and predicts our future. Time is Let's roll. So for episode 100, and for these times, Sebastian's the perfect guest. This is a powerful conversation with another important, inspiring, and iconic American that shaped America's past, is shaping America's present, and will shape America's future. We explore what this moment reveals about the soul of America. We discuss what true community and true patriotism means. And of course, we get into his favorite drink, his first car, what makes him angry and happy. We also talk about parenting, how to work in a pandemic, and what it was like for him to own a bar in New York City. These are perilous, interesting, precarious, trying times. And this show will continue to dig into it all, and continue to evolve, to improvise, adapt, and overcome. Things are moving fast in America, and we need to move fast too. But we also need to slow down, and understand where we are, how we got here, and where we're going. There's an old saying in the Army, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. So we're going to slow it down with Sebastian a bit, so we can figure out how America can move fast to face our threats, in the future. It's light to contrast to heat, content to help you through it, content with the five eyes: independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. America is at its best when we never forget. And we need leaders who never forget, leaders who understand history, who understand what's important. And especially in times like this, we need leaders who understand pain. Sebastian Younger understands pain. But he also understands its place and he can help us make sense of it. He can help us ensure that it doesn't overwhelm us. Sebastian Younger is a man who gets it. This week at that ceremony honoring Officer Brian Sicknick, President Biden visited to pay his respects. He was there to ensure America didn't forget Brian Sicknick and to ensure America didn't forget January In his presence, in his body language, and in his tear-filled eyes above the mask, all of America could see that Joe Biden is a man who gets it. I don't believe in destiny, but maybe Joe Biden went through all that pain in his life so he could help us through ours now. Maybe he can help lead us in ensuring that we never forget. But he can't do it alone. America is at its best when we never forget when all of us never forget. And this, this, this is the time to ensure that we all never forget. Welcome to Angry Americans. Episode 100, let's roll. gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the globe. This is episode 100. We've made it to 100, the century mark. And I can't think of a more fitting guest to bring us into a new century of episodes, to bring us through the chaos of the last few months and years and to help us figure out what comes next. than a guy that I admire, I'm honored to call a friend, I've worked alongside for many years and was on my Wish list at the top when I created this show. Uh, a true American treasure, a voice of reason, and maybe one of the most interesting guys in America, the great and powerful Sebastian Younger. Thank you so much. That's quite an intro. I really appreciate it. You deserve it, man. You deserve it. Uh, we've known each other for, man, over a decade now, I think, right? Yep. Um, and been through some interesting shit. But let me start off with. Uh, a question I've been asking everybody, Sebastian: Where are you, and how are you? Uh, I'm doing very well. Uh, we're we just I'm in uh,
2: New York City, Manhattan, Lower East Side, and we just had a big blizzard that pretty much paralyzed the city. So I I uh, I was afraid that we'd seen the end of snow because uh, we haven't had any snow in the city for three years or something like that. And I have two young children, and the idea that they would grow up without knowing what snow was was so horrifying to me. And so
0: now now we've got plenty. Uh, how has the pandemic been for you as, as a writer, as a young dad? I know you spend time in other places, but uh, I do writing, obviously, and it's been simultaneously uh, empowering, but also incredibly difficult. But, um, you know, you, you, you're one of the, I think, one of the most important writers of, of our time. How is that? How's writing in the pandemic?
2: Well, you know, it's a... Um, as a new dad, it, 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 it's really a childcare issue. And, and it's, um, you know, because of the pandemic, it was, it's been really hard. As many parents know, it's been very hard to get safe reliable childcare because you know, contact is dangerous. And, um, so I, I just, you know, I just finished writing a book a few months ago and I've compared it to, you know, writing a book with two young children in the house, I've compared it to writing a book while, while driving a car. I mean, you know, basically you can grab, grab a few seconds at a time uh, and, and you look down to your right and scribble a few words and then you keep driving. And it's a little, it's a little bit like that. And, and my, um, my wonderful wife has been just a hero, sort of like, uh, you know, blocking them a little bit from, you know, a couple of hours at a time so I can get the work done. But um, it's been
0: really hard, as every family knows. That's a really good way to put it. That, that's I think that's what it feels like for anybody trying to get something done trying to uh, you, like you pull over in a rest stop try to knock something out real quick and then you yeah. got to get back in traffic before your car gets towed right like that's kind of the the pandemic work experience um I want to ask you man because you your kids are almost uh the same age as mine mine are 5 and almost 2 and we haven't seen each other in person in a long time and we're going to get into a lot of issues. I want to get into to all of your books and to Tribe and what's happening in this country right now. But uh, on a very practical level or, or a personal level, how has being a dad changed uh, you as a writer and, and as a person? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh,
2: I mean, my writing is the same. My experience of life as a person has changed. Mm. Um, and I, 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 it's made me, like the experience of war, um, being a parent has made me way more emotional. I mean, it'd be, both things open you up for different reasons, but they open you up profoundly and they open you up to both joy and sorrow. And uh, so, I, you know, I would say between my experiences covering wars overseas and then my experience as a parent now, um, I would say... I'm finally a sort of fully emotional, complete, emotionally complete human being with pretty good access to most parts of myself, Mm. most of the time. And that was not true when I was young. And maybe for some good reasons, you know, when you're sort of walled off, and it allows you to be highly, highly functional. Mm. And, and, um, but there's a point in your life where you don't want to just be functional, you also want to actually experience things. And that to me, the, one of the amazing blessings of parenthood is that it's um, given me access to myself. And that's, that's been a really profound, profound thing for me.
0: That, that is profound. I love the way you break it down. I, I remember uh, before my first son was born, uh, General Petraeus, of all people, told me, I look forward to you having children because it'll smooth out some of your edges. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what he meant at the time, but now I kind of know what he means. Right. And then I remember hearing president Obama say something like parenthood is like having your heart outside of your body and having it exposed to everything that happens. We dropped my kid off today, uh, as his school reopened for the first time since November in person. And, uh, it was delayed by two days because of the snowstorm and my wife and I dropped him off because we're still worried about him taking the bus. And she said, you know, I, am really." I'm just worried about him going in because I can't help but think about Parkland, which is, you know, yeah. in about two weeks, the anniversary of Parkland. So I think I think your your description of like feeling everything so much more is really, really insightful.
2: Yeah. And I, you know, as a, I was a climber for tree companies when I was young, I did all the like aerial aerial work on a rope, the chainsaw. And and then I was a war reporter. And so you get very good. I got very good at shutting down the experience of fear mm-hmm. and sort of abstracting it. And, you know, I was very scared of heights when I was doing tree work, but I learned how to not think about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, as a parent, you, the, it's the opposite, like you can't keep the fears out and it's not fears for myself. Right. I mean, it's fears for what could happen to your child. And it's completely paralyzing. Like, I mean, or if you let it be, it's totally paralyzing. And I, I've i just never known such vulnerability. Oh, my God. Like it, it's. um it's really extraordinary, you know. And and also, you know, children can be they can be difficult. They can get angry. They have tantrums. They have all kinds of stuff, right? And you and and you have to have empathy because they're not doing things on purpose. They're going through these neurological changes, and some of them come out as a fifteen minute temper tantrum, and that's them going through their changes. And you got it can't feel good to be a three year old with a temper tantrum. That cannot feel good, right? And you you have to remember to be um, to have some sympathy for their experience, too, while you're creating boundaries. And it's just like it's an ex- extraordinary juggling act
0: mm. i'm I'm so thankful to be talking to you about this because I want to talk about the the politics of the day and the national security yeah. situation. But I also think that this is the kind of stuff that We need to talk more about as a country and and kind of process together. I almost feel like, you know, we're processing trauma together in a way that we as folks who've been exposed to combat may be processed in isolation. And you've been great about expanding many of these conversations or translating many of these conversations. But we're going through such a trauma as a country and these different phases of trauma and and, you know, maybe post-traumatic Growth, right? This is a term that you've seen thrown around in the veterans and, and military and combat community. But I think it's a really important discussion about uh, how we're feeling and thinking and processing, especially after having a president who didn't help us on that in any level. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I know, I think he's, I mean, look, I, I, I mean, I'm happy to say that I didn't vote for Donald Trump and I've been a Democrat my whole life. Um, but my heart, in some ways, and I, and I'm, I'm it's super alarmed by things that have been going on in this country. But if you look at Donald Trump as a, um, as a damaged person, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just, it's, it, the thought has occurred to me, like, how much pain do you have to be in to cause this much pain?
1: Mm-hmm. You know
2: what I mean? Like, I've thought mm-hmm. about that. Like, his, where is he in his sort of evolution as a human being? What happened in his childhood? that has produced someone that even some Republicans will say, look, yeah, he's a pretty flawed person. Mm. And I'm like, what happened to that guy when he was three? And I've thought about it now because I'm a parent, Yeah, but like what happened in that home? And I, I've tried to kind of open my heart up a little bit, as much as I abhor- have abhorred his leadership, open my heart up a little bit to like what produced that, because mm. it can't be fun being him either. Mm. frankly. And um, I think if we can all think in those terms about all of us, you know what I mean? They've all, if Americans, if we all can think in those sort of empathic terms about everybody, we'll probably
0: get further down the road faster. I, I, I think you're right, and I hope you're right. Um, and you and I have had, you know, a lot of these conversations over the last few years. I remember having drinks with you around a, a fire in LA and in the bar that you ran, or we're part of in New York City. And uh, one of the questions that we've always had in the show, since it's the 100th episode, I can't go having a conversation with you without asking Sebastian Younger, what is your drink of choice? <laughs> well, the truth, it's a, it's a
2: two-part answer. Um, it used to be bourbon uh, and rye whiskey. And, um, you know, I owned a bar and when I walked in, I would, I would order a double bur- or I wouldn't even order it. They would just bring a double bourbon. Right. And, uh, but I, I don't drink anymore. I haven't drunk and I haven't had a drink in like five or six years, something like that. And, uh, so which I'm happy to talk about if you like. But the, but the short answer is I don't drink anymore. So I
0: don't have a favorite drink. I, I actually would. would I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with that. I think like a lot of folks are. I mean, I, I went a couple months earlier this year without drinking at all. And I, and I felt great. And, uh, you know, I wasn't going cold turkey completely. But um, how, what was it like going through that? It seems like it was almost a part of my process as a writer and maybe other things were a part of my process as a writer and you owned a bar. So just, I mean, any of that you want to expand upon? I mean, your bar was kind of like a, like a clubhouse for a lot of thinkers, academics, uh, a lot of veterans, right. And people who had been combat reporters, it was really an important place, I think, for us to gather pre-pandemic. So um, yeah. what are your thoughts on all that?
2: Well, I mean, look, a bar, a bars are a, a center of sociability in, in communities and they sort of, A very very healthy purpose. Um, I mean, my dad grew up in Spain and Spanish culture, Irish culture, American culture. I mean, the pub. I mean, it's a super important part of any community. Um, And I've definitely enjoyed a drink or two in my life, and I'm glad I did. And I, you know, I, you know, I miss it to some degree. I mean, it it was a, you know, it can be a wonderful thing to do. And I, and I will also say, as a writer, creatively, um, many articles or books I've. You know, when you figure out the structure of a book or an article, it's not a methodical process. There's a there's a conceptual leap that has to happen, where you can visualize the entire thing in this sort of organic way. And getting to that place in your mind, you don't necessarily get there by sitting at a desk and crunching numbers. Mm-hmm. You have to get there in a different way. And I, many times in my life, I have hit a hit a brick wall with like how to write something. And I've taken a notebook and a pen and gone out to a bar and sat there and had a couple of drinks and just free associated my book War, the structure of it, the tripartite structure of it, um, fear, killing, and love, the sort of three emotional experiences of combat that came to me sitting in a bar in the Lower East Side, um, sort of trying to think in intuitive ways. So, alcohol can be an enormously creative force in a person's life. Um, I'm 59 right now. I got to the point in my 50s where, for a variety of reasons, I just thought I'm just not going to drink anymore. And um, and now I'm you know I'm so used to it, I just I, I forget that I don't drink because I don't even think I just it's just not part of my consciousness.
1: Mm.
0: Can I ask you what bar in the Lower East Side you you came up with the idea for Warren? <laughs> Do you remember? I don't think it, it, it exists. I don't think it exists anymore. I just sort of wandered. Around. I I, uh,
2: I was living in another part of the city, but I had used to live down here. And, uh, the Lower East Side and I was just wandering around and, and I just stepped into a bar. I don't know which one it was. I, it was on, uh, it was on Rivington
0: street. There's a lot of them down. There. Like I, I wrote my book, uh, and the low and was living in the Lower East Side at the time. And I felt like it was, it, it was, a, uh, it should have got like an editing credit in my book or some kind of creative input yes. credit because it was right. a place where it was kind of like so rich with the history of, and and, and vibe of writing. Um, but let me ask you another question, Sebastian. I've asked of all of our guests. When you go in the way way back machine, when you were growing up, um, probably before you were doing tree work, Sebastian Younger, what was your very first car?
2: Uh, it was a it was a Dodson station wagon. It was an awful green color. Um, I mean, it really. I mean, it was just one of these rattly cheap cars. Um, but it went and went and went. And I had that. Uh, I had that for quite a long time. You know what year it was and what color? Well, I was born in 62 and I, I think I took it to college at 18. So that would have been what 1980?
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah. And what color? Oh, it was green. It was an awful green. What kind of green? Like what did it look like? You're a writer, you gotta describe the green of
1: yeah. your car. <laughs> I
2: I think it was trying to be a forest green, but it but
0: it was a little more pukey than that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Every time I ask that question I'm surprised by the answer almost every single time. So in a 100 episodes we've had everything from a Humvee to a Model T to now your your you're not the station wagon. So it's been a it's been a fun journey. The
2: the, great, the thing about station wagons is I realized my best buddy is that you can sleep in the back of them which means you can go anywhere. So we drove it all the way down into Mexico, we drove it up into to uh, the top of Nova Scotia and then took a ferry over to newfoundland and hitchhiked around newfoundland um we didn't bring i remember that trip we didn't bring sleeping bags we we were just idiots we were young men we were idiots and so we we slept inside a a pile of hay it was so cold it was june in northern newfoundland and uh we we piled up a bunch of hay and stuffed it underneath some plywood and and slept behind a uh, behind a pub in st john's newfoundland in a in a but squirreled away in a bunch of hay like that was that's where my Dotson station wagon got us to
0: you I, you have an interesting life man you, you and, and and it's come out in all your work and anybody who knows you and i think you know most folks maybe know you from the first time they heard of you was probably the perfect storm right or maybe maybe i'm wrong with it. and then war was i think such an important work uh and then tribe later and restrepo when you and i i think first got into touch you had the book restrepo and then the film, right? Is that how the order went? And uh, yeah, I mean the uh, the film was Restrepo, the book was War. They came so, out, right, right, yeah, they came out roughly together. Thank you. And then uh, I remember, you know, being t- seeing Restrepo. I remember where I saw it, um, and it was in New York at a screening. And I, that may have been the first time I met you and and Tim. And at the time, and I think still now, you know, for most folks who've been in Afghanistan, they they say if you want to understand Af- Afghanistan. Watcher Strepo. And, yeah. I, and I, I still feel like that's probably the closest you can bring people to that experience. And you were recognized um, with an Oscar nomination, which I think was appropriate. And I think you should have won. And it was an interesting time. I don't know if it was the same year that Hurt Locker happened. Was it the same year or close no, it was, to it? It was a little bit afterwards. But they I remember the, the celebration around Hurt Locker and all these celebrity folks and Hollywood folks. And you took a couple Marines, I think, with you. To, to the to, to the red carpet right They're Airborne, airborne infantry right. they, were, they were in the unit that I was with okay yeah. so it was the guys from the uh, it, it, it was uh 173rd 173rd, right? 173rd. that's right that's so but right. you took those guys you know it was a real contrast it was a time when we were trying to get people to even pay attention to Afghanistan and Iraq um, you've unpacked a lot of these experiences and you have insight into not just you uh, the veterans community, international security, but the essence of war, how the country and the world understands war. Um, I've framed up this battle we're in now as, as an insurgency with white nationalists and the Proud Boys, You know the attack on the Capitol. And I think we may be in for what in many ways is gonna feel like another kind of long war. But right. Sebastian, you're maybe one of the most important public intellectuals on all of this. Can you break down in your view where are we as a country right now? Well, thank you for the compliment i mean I hope
2: my answer can live up to it um i we're in a very i mean this is a this is a cheap cheap shortcut but we're in a we're in a as a country we're in an extremely confusing place um some people are saying that patriotism consists of uh countering a fair election um There are people on the left who are saying that um, being a just person um, means um, segmenting society into which are are different sort of like identities and populations. And like, I I mean, all of that, I understand where it's coming from, but all of that I think is very damaging. Um, I think the ultimate um, sort of sacred good of this society is that we are all free, and we are all equal. Um, and the way in which some people are disadvantaged has to be corrected., uh, but at the epitome of thought in this society are those two beautiful concepts and and I think the I, you know I think what we had leadership that we there's a lot of people in this country that believe things that are not true, and that's a huge problem, right? Um and it started with birtherism. And, you know, I think Donald Trump was under the First Amendment. is It's his right to say that Barack Obama was not born in this country, whatever. The GOP did not have to go along with it, right? But once you start introducing falsehoods like that and not contesting them, you can keep doing that, right? And so the just there was one falsehood after another. Climate change isn't happening. I remember back in 2005, 2006, someone was saying was saying that the Iraq war was not going well, that the insurgency was gaining ground. Right. And it was Karl Rove or maybe it was Dick Cheney. Somebody said, well, that's the, that's journalists. They're, they're, they're in the, um, I think he called it the reality-based community. You don't have to listen to them. Hmm. They're stuck in They're 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 the reality-based community. And that was the beginning of this split between reality and a sort of a political presentation. And, so now you've got people who think the election wasn't fair. You've got, you have people thinking completely out, outlandish things, but we got here. I don't know if we can get back, but we got here because of a small lie in 2015 about the commander in chief, Barack Obama. And keep in mind the, the, the commander in chief during a war, right? Like imagine serving over, overseas and being told that your commander in chief is an imposter, uh, who is maybe trying to undermine the country. What, what what does that, and the GOP never confronted that lie. And that to me was the thin end of the wedge. And now they're really struggling. I mean, forget about saving the country, they're trying to save their party. I don't think, I'm not sure they can, I hope they can. Mm. Uh, but it started with that lie and had they, I, I believe, had they, had they confronted that lie at the time, I don't think the GOP or the country would be where it is right now.
1: Mm.
0: Sebastian, you wrote a piece for uh, I think it was National Review where you talked about, you know, a bit about the concept of tribe. Right. And the pandemic had hit. Um, Can you can you expand on, you know, the idea of tribe? Right. And and how you think it has applied or been tested by the pandemic in particular. And now this new evolution of what I'm calling an insurgency. Other folks have other names for it. But this this internal threat that we're facing.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, hum, humans are great in, in, in a crisis. They actually don't do so well when 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 they're bored or when there's no challenges. I mean, it's actually not a great environment for humans. But we're so clearly our evolution had us confronting one challenge after another in our daily lives. And we really thrive on that. So you throw a hurricane at some people. You throw the blitz in London at people. Um, you put people in a platoon and send them into combat. Humans, do; they, they always step up to the challenge. And one of the ways they step up is by they stop thinking about themselves and they start thinking about the group. And the survival of the self depends on the survival of the group. So it's a, that's a completely um, logical and emotionally resonant choice to make. And when you identify with the group, it's particularly in a situation of danger, um, there can be an almost ecstatic feeling. I mean, you know, every every religion is trying, tries to rid people of their sense of like enclosure, their sense of self. Like you, the, religions try to open people up to the broader experience of being human, being part, part of something greater and ultimately part of God. I'm not, I'm an atheist, but that was my understanding of religion. Mm-hmm. So a crisis can produce that. You're part of this group, right? You don't matter. And that can be an ecstatic experience. And um, so, during what they found is that during um, during the Blitz in London, psychiatric disorders went down during the bombings. Uh, depression, suicide, all those things went down during the bombings, and then back up when normalcy returned. The problem with the pandemic is that the thing you have to do to protect your community is to not be with them,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Usually, strength. And protection and safety come from being with other people. Try going camping with six people. You'll sleep great at night. Go camping alone by yourself in the woods. You will not sleep great at night, right? That's the power of the multitude. And the, the, the tragedy of the pandemic is that the greatest act of affiliation we can have for our community to protect them and ourselves is to actually not be with them. It's, it's completely unhuman. Uh, and yet it must be done. And, I, you know, I think that has psychologically destabilized the country enormously, mm. understandably. Mm. Um, and then along came um, a lot of conspiracy theories. Along came the, the election. We all knew this t- turmoil was coming. I think we've all known it for, for several years that if Donald Trump lost the election, it was going to be a bumpy ride. I think we all knew that. Um and now here we are. It is a bumpy ride. I think we're going to survive, but it, my God, I mean, how many things can you pile on one country at once? I think it's not a coincidence. I think they
0: are triggering each other, in fact. Um, Sebastian, can you you you've been to I don't know how many war zones um, you've seen various evolutions of combat and war and and trauma. Um, can you maybe go deeper into January sixth? And what's happened since, um, you know, you you even created a nonprofit uh, risk, right, to help journalists um, be prepared for medical emergencies in a a combat environment. Right. Help me if I if I mischaracterize that. But I thought it was really forward thinking. Um, But we're watching January 6th and we're seeing what unfolds next. You've seen different parts of this story before, but maybe never assembled like this. What are you seeing on January 6th and afterward and ahead?
2: Yeah, I mean, but first of all, let me just say that, I mean, I studied anthropology in college. There's a lot of evidence, a lot of research that about 50% of our political belief has genetic origins. In other words, there is DNA associated with conservatism and liberalism. And so they, both, are, both ways of thinking about the world and about our community are clearly adaptive, helped our ancestors survive. About 50% of the variance is genetic, 50% is, is learning. If you grew up in a liberal conservative household, you're likely to adopt those norms. So let me just say, even though I'm a Democrat, I absolutely believe that both, both parties, both ways of thinking are, are healthy and good and essential to running a balanced and healthy society. I just want to get that out there. Um, What's what's not healthy is the idea that you can achieve political ends through violence. So if if, if you do that, you are a terrorist, right? If you use violence to achieve a political end, you are a terrorist. If you use violence to achieve a political end and you're associated with the government, you're a fascist. Right, those are the two words. Right, though neither thing is democracy. Right, and there is a rather bright line there. Um, If you think the election was um, "quote" stolen in a in a democracy, conflicts are adjudicated by the courts. And if you know if the state charges you with dealing drugs and the court convicts you, you are a convicted drug dealer, whether you like it or not. That's just how it works. Well, likewise. With this election, recent election, the courts overwhelmingly upheld the results, uh, as did many Republican um, figures in our in, in the Trump administration. That's just what happened, right? And if you resort to violence to change the outcome, you're a fascist. And I, you know, Trump, um, he checks just about every box for fascism. I mean, my father, you know, my father's a refugee from two wars. He's he's passed away. Um but he was born in nineteen twenty three He lived in Spain when he was young. Uh, he fled Madrid when the fascists came in under Franco uh, went to paris. They fled Paris when the Nazis came in. He came to this country and he lived his whole life here. Um, you know fascism is the belief that you know you know basically you can unite all the um, levers of government under one uh, under one party, under one person, and everything within the government is at the disposal. Of that person, the, the the intelligence services, the security, uh, the justice department, like all of those things, their job is to bolster the power of this one person. That is fascism, and uh, it's associated with a huge amount of violence. And what I saw on January to get back to your question, what I saw on January sixth was the incredibly disorganized, inept, wrong-minded beginnings of a group of people thinking that they can change an outcome with violence and intimidation. Mm -hmm. Um, That's fascism. That's not America. It's not democracy. It's certainly not freedom. Um, And I think it has to be dealt with um, in a very, very direct way. I think the government's trying. I think the GOP just, I think the GOP can save itself by calling that
0: January 6th, what it was, which is a fascist attack on our freedom. Mm. And, Simultaneously, you've got uh, you know Adam Kinziger and Liz Cheney trying to fight from one side, and then you've got uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene on the other, right? And and Matt Gates and and there's this internal political conflict coming or happening and unfolding. Um, but you said something I thought that was really important. You said the beginnings of. So I and Malcolm Nance and others we've had on this show are said you know have said this that was not an event. This is kind of a new normal. Um, um, can you talk about what you see knowing, you know, you know, probably the, you know, have an insight into what the oath keepers are like, what other elements of this country yeah. are like, you've been, you're the, I don't know, a guy that's been more uptown and downtown across America than you. Um, if this is the beginning, what, what comes next? What does it look like? And you mentioned it a little bit, but what do we do to, to stop it or fight like, it?
2: Well, yeah, th- what i would say is in spain in the 1930s the reason the fascists won and democracy lost was because the military sided with franco the military sided with the fascists mm-hmm. right uh, as did the catholic church and between the church and the military and the um sort of in, in, the industrial power keepers in that country it was an unstoppable force and they and they they they, they took over the country and ruled it as a fascist state for decades. In this country, thank God, the military is is neutral. It's professionally neutral, right? I mean, it's, it's ingrained. It's neutrality is ingrained. And, uh, you know, once in a while, you get someone who in the military that sort of follows their personal political instincts, but for the most part, it's completely neutral. So at the end of the day, I don't think militarily this fascism in America is going to go anywhere. I don't think that oath keepers I mean it was amazingly inept that January 6. I mean my god if that you know a disproportionate number of those people were ex-military if that's their best effort good god we're going to be fine because that was pathetic, right? But it was dangerous and it was demoralizing and disheartening and you know I think you have a what 30% of the of republican voters believe the the, the lies of qAnon, 70% think that the the election was stolen. If you have an entire party that believes things that just are demonstrably not true, what you have is a crisis in the GOP. I think the rest of the country, which has the military behind it and rationality behind it, I think the rest of the country is going to sort of be OK. But I am sort of wondering what the GOP is going to do with itself. And we're finding out right now, I mean, the sort of war between Green and, and, and Cheney it's splitting, it's splitting the party in half. And um, again, I I think it started with that stupid lie about where Barack Obama was born. And I think had the GOP confronted that lie at the time, they would not be in this predicament, but here they are. And the sooner they start telling the truth, the sooner they're going to be, what, the truth shall shall set you free, right? I mean, that's, um, anyone who's gone to church knows that sentence, right? So, Go for it, guys. The
0: truth will set you free. This time is, today is the time to start. Mm. So there are these um, epic choices, right? You've got to pick between Biden and Trump. right? And then we have that choice and the, the Trump group becomes maybe a bit smaller. Right. Then within that, uh, or the Republicans become a bit a bit smaller. Then it becomes, OK, you got to choose between Kenzinger and Green. Right. And then the, the Green crew may keep getting smaller, um, but may also intensify and get more calcified and more militant and more desperate and more extreme. And that, that, in my experience, has been how things tend to unfold. And this idea that Trump was just going to go to Mar-a-Lago and shut up and play golf is, is a fantasy. Like, even if he's gone, just like in Iraq after Saddam, you have Maqdada al-Assad or you have other evolutions of this ideology that will continue. And one of the things we've explored in the show, Sebastian, is anger. Right. Yeah. And and we've tried to, to get ahead of this curve a long time ago and say people are angry about a lot of things, school shootings, snow, taxes, um, you know, a lot of things that, that maybe they're right to be angry about. That's part of this country. But what you do with it is the key. Right. And we try to turn it into positive impact. And I'm going to explore that more in the next 100 or 200 episodes. But as we come to episode 100, the question we've asked everyone is, Sebastian Younger, what makes you angry? Good. Um. Good question.
1: Uh, it makes me extremely angry when people, um, when people lie
2: for their own benefit, when people lie in order to achieve personal power, um, when people lie knowing it will cost other people something but they themselves will benefit. That makes me enormously angry. And. And and here, I'm going to put on my completely bipartisan hat. Both sides do it. The right wing does it for sure. Uh, we're seeing sort of a, the last four years, we saw a flagrant example of it. Uh, but the left wing does it as well. And, 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 and um, it happens in academia, in the universities. Um, this sort of mis- misrepresenting reality for um, a kind of political gain. I think is the most
0: loathsome thing. And it makes me absolutely Mm. furious. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, uh, I feel like you could write an entire book on the concept of, of a lot of concepts, but anger, right. And, and, and where that manifests itself in America. Let me ask you this, because you, a lot of your work is about maybe giving voice and beautiful description to, um, People who are living hard lives or having hard times or working people, however we want to categorize it, right? Men and women, whether they're working on a boat or they're in Afghanistan. So you have a really special understanding of the fabric of this country. Um, You're a Democrat. Um, A lot of folks are Democrat or Republican by default. We've explored a lot the idea of alternative options. And I don't mean QAnon, I mean, you know, unaffiliated, right? Um, What do you see in the middle? or, you know, political middle, or maybe outside of the boxes, as we, we see potentially third party options and other places to expand, knowing all these communities that you do? Um, what do you see out there politically uh, that, that could come together or that people might respond to that maybe aren't choice A or B?
2: Well, I, you know, I think if the GOP splits, it's going to be hard for them to win an, to win elections, obviously. I mean, that's just basic math. And I think they're headed for that. So, and what 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 really dis I dislike is the idea that the the Democrats, who I you know I'm a Democrat for some good reasons, but we can also be unbelievably wrong minded and inept. And the idea that the Democrats could, by default, wind up sort of running the country because the GOP, because of its own internal contradictions and lies, has split down the middle. That's a disaster for everybody. I mean, I want a healthy GOP. I don't want the democrats to run everything i want a healthy gop so that you have a fair contest of ideas um so that to me i mean that to me is a ghastly prospect um ghastlier would be donald trump's way of doing things continuing like i mean I, I, that that to me is even worse but i don't i don't want the democrats to call the shots for the next 20 years because the gop is split down the middle um and I, you know, I think like I was just reading an article today about the, the the Atlantic Monthly did an analysis of the 193 people who were arrested for the capital the the attack on the capital. Um, they were disproportionately older. They were not a young crowd. Disproportionately older, obviously, almost exclusively white. Disproportionately older. Many of them business owners. These are not people who were hurting, right? These are not unemployed. The unemployed masses, right? These are. Business owners, people with good jobs—they were from blue states as well as red states, but they were not desperate people, right? So I, I think we have to understand this political moment not in not as a kind of an uprising of the of of, of the un, desperate unemployed people. I mean, look, there were a lot of labor riots in 19 teens, 1920s. Those really were desperate people, right? Who were uh, I mean, they were incredibly harsh working conditions and people rose up and a lot of laws got got changed. That's not what the capital riot was. And so I think we have to understand this more in terms of a manipulation by very powerful, influential people, rather than as a, a, a um, a sort of desperate actions of people that had no recourse. Mm-hmm. It was a manipulation and, and, um, a manipulation by people who knew it wasn't true, what they were saying were, was not true. That to me is what's really seconding. Yeah. Like the leaders of this know it wasn't true and they did it anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, th- there's been a lot of uh, comparisons to, you know, what would have happened if the Black Lives Matter protesters did this, right? That's the easy thing I think that the media right. is covering, but they have a, a loss of a sense of history. They forget the bonus march, right? They forget what happened when a group of m- veterans marched on Washington and were crushed, <laughs> and killed by their own military. Like that happened outside the Capitol on, you know, in the, in the cap, but not in the building. Right. Those guys were organized, were veterans, had, you know, real, I think, uh, reasonable gripes about what was going on. And they faced a much more harsh response. And we've seen that, you know, throughout American history in in different ways, but you're, you're a great student of history. Um, Can you talk about what's the, what's the piece of our own history, Sebastian, that we're, Maybe not thinking enough about now, and if if you're if if it's a good pivot into your next book, what you're working on and what you're exploring going forward.
1: Yeah.
2: Um. Well, I mean, I, God, there's, I mean, there's so history, is so complex, and you can pick almost any moment and and take lessons from it. So I, I hesitate to sort of dub one one thing in the American experience as being more illuminating. Um, but what I will say. I think generally, is that until our quite recent past, the American experience has been one of enormous hardship. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, a majority of households didn't even even have electricity until the 19, late 1940s, mm-hmm. right? Um, during the Dust Bowl out West, school, schoolhouses were left open and unlocked because there were so many people on the move walking from town to town, whole families, walking from town to town, looking for refuge, looking for work, that they it was a custom, not a law, but a custom to leave the schoolhouses unlocked so that they could take refuge in the schools at night because there was always also a well that they get water from. Mm. That was within my parents' generation, mm. right? Um, the history of the Pennsylvania frontier, which my book, Freedom, partly focused on, oh my God, was it bloody and brutal. I mean, Hardships. I mean, we we look at the, the refugees from the Syrian civil war and things like that. Like, oh my God, those poor people. How do they do it? Honestly, that's nothing compared to what the the pioneers were doing in Pennsylvania, um, and also what some of the native tribes went through, of course. But it. So it, it, I think we, you know, we've industrialized and technologized our society to the point where survival is almost a almost physical survival is pretty much guaranteed. Mm. Um, And it's allowed us to forget how marginal and how rough and how just arduous and hard the experience of most Americans has been for most of our history. Mm. Um, And that to me, you know, you forget you forget that you think one of the greatest losses a person can experience is to lose their appreciation for how fortunate they are,
1: Mm.
2: whatever that may be. Um, And I think as a nation, we're sort of forgetting that. Um, If you look at our history, it'll it'll occur to you like, oh my God, are we lucky to be right here, right now. Like we really, we really pulled the right, like drew the right card here.
0: I'm so glad I got you on the show right now. (laughs) I really, really, man, this is like, it's a, it's a perfect time to have you here. Um, Do you want to talk any more about what, what, what your next project is specifically or or when folks can look for, I'm going to have you back on when, when it comes out, but um, even, you know, if you don't want to get specific, the ideas you're, you're thinking about and exploring beyond what you've already covered.
2: Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do it briefly. It, uh, it's a, it's a short book called freedom about freedom, about the history of freedom. Uh, it's a follow on to tribe. Um, two of the, um, two of the primary human values in uh, around the world are community and, and freedom and tribe is about community. Obviously I wanted to tackle freedom. And, and I, as I broke it down, I realized that throughout history, um, Freedom has come from three sources. Uh, And and by the way, in my book, I don't discuss anything contemporary. I don't discuss really anything after the 1919 steel mill strikes around Pittsburgh. That's about the last thing that I touch uh, in any depth in my book. Um, But our freedom comes from three sources. Societies, groups of people have maintained their freedom by being very mobile. So, for example, the Apache were free of government, of white control for 400, almost 400 years because they were poor and they were mobile. The Pueblo societies in the southwest got rolled up by the Spanish almost overnight. They were wealthy, but they were tied to their towns and they just got destroyed almost immediately. The Apache, who were poor and mobile, remained free until the 1880s right? My grandmother was born in 1900. I mean, they almost made it to within my grandmother's lifetime. Mm. And they, they did that because they were mobile. They just, the U.S. Cavalry just could not catch them. Mm. Um, in fact, they were so good at evading um, the military that papers have been written comparing the Apache to the Taliban. Because, of course, the Taliban have out sort of outrun and outweighed the U.S. military um, because they're mobile right? That was one of their main assets. So, but if you can't, if you can't outrun your, your oppressor, you're going to have to outfight them. And, um, one of the unique things about humans, both at the individual level and at the group level is that the smaller entity, the smaller individual or the smaller group has a perfectly good chance of beating the larger individuals. Like in chimpanzees and every other animal species, the largest male sort of wins the fight. Right. That's not true with humans, mm-hmm. and for some very complex physiological reasons that I go into, but it's also not true for insurgencies versus larger militaries. If the largest male or the largest group always won, there would be no freedom. And effectively, there would be top-down hierarchies, just like chimpanzee society. Uh, the world would be run by fascist megastates where no rebellion or insurrection could survive. That's not what human history is, thank God. Um, And then finally, if you can't outrun them and you can't outfight them, you're going to have to outthink them. That's what um, that's what the Irish did against the English uh, after the um, the uprising in 1916. That's what the labor movement has done in this country, the civil rights movement. It's been a matter of enormous physical fortitude and courage, but also profound thought. And and so my book is divided into running, fighting and thinking.
0: I love it. <laughs> I can't, and we we all need more freedom right now. And we, I think yeah. with this this I, I think this book is going to be coming at a really important time. Uh, everything you do is is important and timely. But also, you've been uh, you've been kind of shepherding us through some really challenging times in this country before, and I think the country is going to need you even more ahead. You've also been through a lot of shit, like you know. You've covered a lot of really hard stuff. You've been through a lot of hard stuff, and you still stay positive, and you and you inspire others, and you give back. So I want to ask you, Sebastian, a question I also ask of all of our guests, Sebastian Younger: What makes you happy?
2: Um, I mean, honestly, uh, I'm I'm at my happiest when I'm <laughs> when I'm doing something when I'm succeeding at doing something I didn't think I could do. And when I'm with other people that I love or even people I feel connected to, I mean, those two things like to me are, they're, they're almost like drugs. They make me feel so good. Mm. Um, and if I can get them together, you know, I think that's what a lot of guys experience in combat. They're with guys they are, they're with other people they care about and they're doing something that they think they might not be able to do, but they're doing it. They're pulling it off. It is totally intoxicating. But of course you don't need combat for those experiences. They happen every day in people. People's lives they're beautiful and those are the things i'm i'm continually
0: searching for amazing is there anything you recently learned how to do that you didn't think you could do like i could see you being like a secretly a master at yo-yo or like origami or is or is it <laughs> uh, i well you know i started boxing a few years ago
2: and uh um i'm not even sure i'd call myself decent but i'm a hard-working boxer uh and i've always wanted to learn accordion and so i started playing accordion. And uh, I sort of taught myself that is one hard instrument, by the way. <laughs> like, uh, but I'm really proud of myself. Like, I'm pretty decent now. And I did it myself. And it's one of the joys of my day is picking up my accordion and playing.
0: That is amazing. Like, I, I, I did not expect that. My grandmother actually played accordion. Uh, and then my mother was taught it as a child. It was like something that was in the Hungarian community, I guess. And somehow my mother you know, ended up with an accordion in her hand at some point. And it is incredibly difficult yeah. uh, and increasingly rare instrument in our yeah. time. Right? Yeah. You, I mean, you play the melody with your
2: right hand and you need to run the line with your left hand. So you have to have this left hand, right hand independence, which for the aging male brain, let me tell you <laughs> like that that's a tough ask. But, I've, I've I, you know, I'm, I'm getting it like it's, it's, it's and I think it's probably pretty good for you.
0: I love it. All right. Well, I've got to quickly give you some, some gifts virtually. We can't do this in person. Um, but you know, we're going to send you some, some angry Americans gear, which is going to be on sale, uh, for the next couple of weeks. Uh, some super comfortable Tommy John lounge pants, which you can wear when you're writing or playing your accordion. Uh, you got a bottle of uncle nearest whiskey that you can give to someone else. Nice. Look at that. Awesome. Great story. Great mission. Uh, if you and Jeffrey Wright haven't done something together, I feel like we should make that happen because he introduced us to that. And you guys, if you don't know each other, you need to hang out. There's some powerful right. shit. will come I'd out. I'd love of to. I'd love to. And then the, uh, the question that started way, way, way back is our, our peeps question. Uh, Easter is again coming soon, but it's totally uh, independent of that. There are three colors of peeps, Sebastian, uh, yellow, pink, and blue. Which color would you choose and why? I'm not sure what peeps are. Is that? Ah, wow. Okay, I got it. the the yellow uh, marshmallow candies from. Oh, peeps.
2: right. Yeah. Oh, uh, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, uh, yellow, pink, or blue? Yellow, pink, or blue? Oh God, I think I think I'd pick yellow because they're not pink and blue, and pink and blue seems like that's male and female, and I don't want to. I don't know. I I feel. I, I feel like there's no right, no good answer. I, there's I'll no go wrong with, answer.
0: There's I'll, no I'll wrong go, answer. I'll go with yellow, peeps. There you go. There's no wrong answer, <laughs> and, and and everything that you say. Especially right now, is exceptionally valuable. I really mean that. I mean, you I, I want I want America to hear from you every day. if you you know if you want to start a daily radio show or podcast, I'm all in to help in any way I can because you've helped me make sense of the last few decades, and I know you'll help me make sense and learn more about myself and our country and our community. So I am just incredibly grateful for your leadership and your sacrifice and your fortitude. Uh, and and your talent. Um, You don't have the bar anymore, but maybe when this changes, we can uh, all get together and box and play accordion and eat some peeps. Awesome. I look forward to it, man. All right. Thank you. The great Sebastian Younger. Thank you for all you do. Look for his new book coming up. Read and watch everything he's ever done. He's truly uh, an inspiring and important and iconic American. Thank you, my friend. Stay vigilant. Stay frosty. Thank you. Take care. Man, I love Sebastian. That dude represents the best of what this country is all about. He's adding light to the heat and making us all smarter. And I'm serious about the boxing, the accordion playing, and the peeps. We need things to look forward to to help us through this winter, through the pandemic, and through the storms. So keep breathing. Keep breathing. And let's all do this again now. Come on. There we go. That's it. Remember to breathe. 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 we got to breathe. As the storms continue to pound this country, we need cool heads. And we need helpers. Helpers like Sebastian. Helpers like all our guests in 100 episodes of this show. And most of all, helpers like you. Always look for the helpers.
1: There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines,
0: because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. My thanks to all of you who joined us back in episode one, who just joined us this time, or joined us somewhere along the way. You're the helpers, and my thanks to all of you. And my thanks to all the helpers that are out there, way out there, from the teachers and the schools to the nurses and the hospitals to the Capitol Hill cops that are standing out in the cold again right now, to all the mental health professionals helping us through this, to all the parents helping their kids, making sure Zoom and Google Classroom don't crash, and of course to all the kids, you're all helpers. Now, Paxatuni Phil says we're getting six more weeks of winter, so hang in there. The winter of mayhem is here, and you're all answering the call, standing in the cold. Making hard choices, making big sacrifices. Stay strong out there. My thanks to all of you that have made 100 episodes happen. And my thanks to the helpers that made this episode happen in particular. Thank you to Sebastian Younger. Go out and get his books. Really, all of them. Get The Perfect Storm, War, Tribe. And you can pre-order Freedom right now for just 13 bucks on Amazon. Go check it out. Go support Sebastian. Freedom ain't free. And right now, it's only 13 bucks on Amazon. So go check out Freedom. And also, please watch Restrepo. It's available on Amazon Prime Video. You can also watch the follow-up Coringall. You can watch The Last Patrol and which way is the front line from here. But Restrepo is a must for every single American. And a lot of Sebastian's work has been with and about his good friend and creative partner, Tim Hetherington. I was honored to know Tim. Shortly after the release of Restrepo, Tim was killed in Libya. I'll never forget the moment I found out. I was sitting on a plane on my way to Los Angeles to an event where we would be honoring Sebastian and Tim. We got an email saying that they wouldn't be able to make it to LA. And instead, that Tim had been killed. But Sebastian's work is about telling the stories of so many people, including Tim's. Tim was always a helper. And Sebastian carries on the legacy of Tim and so many others in all that he does. So be a helper. Check out the work and share it. And my deepest thanks again to Sebastian. And of course, my thanks to the Righteous Media team that helped us get to the Big 100, Mighty Mercy Rich, Creative Chris Rosenthal, Brilliant Bill Schultz. You all made it possible. My thanks also to our fearless Patreon members. You helped us get to 100. So we're going to do a special announcement next week for you guys first. I'll host a special Zoom And you can get on your Patreon for more info that's coming soon. But I've also got a ton of Angry Americans gear to get out, and you guys are going to get it first. And if you're not a part of that community, you can join the Vigilant and look for Angry Americans on Patreon. You can chip in and help us keep this show moving, keep the dispatches coming, and keep all our work moving. Nobody's digging into the issues like we are, especially the issues of war, conflict, veterans affairs, and much more. Be a part of what we're building and please share. Go check us out on Patreon. And if you like this episode, please go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. That's a great way for you to help us help you and help others. And be sure to subscribe for free and share. You can visit us on social media and check out angryamericans.us. We got lots of video there, including video of this conversation with Sebastian and video of just about every other conversation we've had in 100 episodes. And I'll definitely have a big new 101st show coming for you next Thursday. So get ready for that. We're about to click into a whole new gear. And my thanks to all of you who got us to this point. And my massive, eternal, never-ending thanks to my wife and two boys. They made it all possible. And my son is back in school this week in person. And that in and of itself to me is Heroic so is all that my little boys are facing in this pandemic and every single day and i'm in awe of them and this snowy winter has also presented a new passion for me and the boys it's innovative inspiring intense and maybe just a little bit angry if you don't know now you know it started with a small group of builders and
1: diehard fans It fills arenas around the world. This
0: is BattleBots. Yes, BattleBots. It's hard to imagine anything more American. Engineers from MIT and local mechanics working in their garage from across America and now all across the world. Building amazing fighting robots that do combat on a grand stage. Robots with hammers and flamethrowers and saws and names like Tombstone, Bite Force, Witch Doctor, Bronco, and Death Roll. It's like a STEM class on steroids. It's been around for 20 years now. 20 years. And yes, it's awesome. And yes, it is educational. And maybe it's the best show ever for a snowy day marathon. So yes, my boys and I are hooked in a way we haven't been since we first found Monster Jam. So my thanks to BattleBots and to Farouk, Chris Rose, Kenny Florian, and the entire crew over there for the inspiration. BattleBots is American ingenuity at its best. And it's the kind of ingenuity we can hopefully be known for again in the days ahead. As we continue to do things like send people to space with NASA and SpaceX, have GM committing to building exclusively electric cars by 2035, and working to defeat the virus. American innovation and toughness is something Sebastian has explored in all his work. And it's something we've explored in all 100 episodes of this show. And it's something we'll need in the days ahead to crush this domestic insurgency, to defeat the virus, to rebuild our economy, and to emerge from these hard times stronger at the broken places. America needs innovation right now. And America needs tenacity. America also needs unity and places to find it are hard to come by. But this show will continue to strive to be one of those places, because it's gut check time in America right now. The winter of 2021 will forever be a defining time in our country's history. Winter 2021 will one day be remembered as a time in America like the summer of 1969. This is a defining moment for our generation. This is our Super Bowl. America has to step up and rise to the magnitude of this moment and will adapt, improvise and overcome on the show, within righteous media and as a country. And that will continue in a big way in our next episode next week. So stay tuned, subscribe for free and share. And we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week and enjoy the Super Bowl this weekend. It should be a good one. I'm still amazed the NFL pulled off the season and I'm still pissed they did it with so many fans in the stadiums and likely made the pandemic worse. But we will have a big game. And I'm picking KC to beat Tom Brady in a close one. I'm almost rooting for Tom Brady this year, but I just can't. So I'm rooting for and picking Kansas City. 38-31. I'm picking Kansas City over Tampa Bay. That's my call. But what do I know? I know we all need something to root for. And I know that it's still okay to be angry. But that's not enough anymore. We must pay attention and stay vigilant. And try, as Sebastian explained, to unite as one tribe. Even if we can't in person, we can innovate and find ways to do it online and virtually and through this show and the community that lives and grows around it. So know that after 100 episodes especially, you're not alone. We're all a little angry, but we're also vigilant. That's because we're paying attention. And we're all in this together. That's something we should all never forget. I'm your host, Paul Reichov. Thanks for listening. Stay frosty. And stay vigilant, America.